This is Dan Wharton Uncancelled. Let's go. My next guest is proud to be nicknamed Britain's strictest headmistress and has become one of the most talked about people in the UK this week after starring in a new ITV documentary of the same name. Catherine Burblesing is an educational firebrand whose revolutionary ideas are now influencing policy and changing the lives of inner city kids at the free school she founded called Michaela Community School. Take a quick look at her in action on ITV. So you and I had a conversation at break time. You said to me, yes, miss, I really want to get it right, miss. And then this happens. You've said to me, you really want to be at this school. You've said to me that you understand why the rules are here and why you need to behave yourself. A couple of hours later, you were in the corridors misbehaving. I think to myself, what you were telling me just isn't true. I'm so disappointed, Corliss. I am so disappointed. You don't want to mess with her now. Catherine was recently appointed as the chair of the government's Social Mobility Commission, but has faced backlash from the left, of course, for attacking woke culture. She's fighting against pushback yet again from the PC mob this week for her perfectly reasonable suggestion that the so-called dead white men like Shakespeare should still be taught in schools. UK exam boards have added more ethnic minority authors to their reading list since the 2020 BLM protests after pupils began pressuring schools into decolonizing campaigns. But Catherine has urged teachers to ignore the woke noise and avoid scrapping historical novels and cultural icons like Shakespeare and Dickens. She wants less focus on race and gender and describes the ideas in their work as universal, which they clearly are. I'm delighted to say that Catherine joins me now. Catherine, I'll, I'll talk about the show, uh, which was brilliant, by the way, in just a moment. But but first, do do classic texts and and literary greats like Shakespeare genuinely face being cancelled from schools as a result of this so-called decolonization of the curriculum? Well, I don't think that will happen now. When I was being interviewed, I was saying that that's to come. It's certainly happening in places in America, and we tend to copy America. You know, they say when America sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold. And um, we have been following America in all sorts of ways with regard to critical race theory, um, separating white kids from black kids. There was that whole program on Channel 4 uh, called The School That Tried to Stop Racism, when really it should have been called The School That Tried to Stoke Racism. Um, when you tell all the white kids that they're responsible for all the ills in the world and the, ra the black kids are all good uh, for being black, that is actually encouraging children to be racist as far as I'm concerned. So um, it's already the case that we're going down that road. And my worry is that Look, I'm not saying we shouldn't teach any black authors. I'm a black author myself. So I'm not saying, uh, you know, we teach um, Andrea Levy, Small Island, who are in our English A-level. We went and took the kids to see Small Island at the National Theatre. It was a wonderful play. Having said that, I do think that dead white men are really important. And these days, they are getting cut more and more. Uh, Shakespeare is certainly still featuring. But at Michaela, we teach four Shakespeare plays, Macbeth, um, Othello, um, Romeo and Juliet and Caesar. We get them to memorize some of Caesar's speech on courage and they, they belt it out. That sort of thing, those traditional ways of teaching, uh, we sing Jerusalem, God save the queen, I bow to thee my country. That is very, very rare um, if, if, if it happens at all in places. You know, I, I have to say I visited many, many, many schools and I, I don't really see that happening. So um, 
when I say eventually Shakespeare will go, it could be in three years, it could be in 10 years, it could be in 15 years, I don't know. But I do think that's the way that we're heading. I think you're completely right, by the way. I mean, you only have to look at the way that the Globe Theatre now fails to stand up for Shakespeare and is even trying to decolonise the work. I would say if there's any organisation that should be standing up for Shakespeare, it should be the Globe. So, so I think Shakespeare is a threat, actually, and I think it is a huge concern. Well, and, and why should we teach Shakespeare? Because I often have to defend this. And I have to say things like Shakespeare has been influencing literature for the last 400 years. Um, and I would never want Shakespeare replaced by books that I've written. But, you know, if the day ever comes that I have been influencing literature for 400 years, then by all means, teach me in schools. But for now, I think we should be sticking with Shakespeare. Um, the other thing that's interesting is the way in which Shakespeare is now taught. So, for instance, schools that will teach Othello, rather than seeing Othello the character as a, as a Moor and as the other, which is which in the Jacobean uh, times, then that that's how they would have been thinking of him. It's very much taught as a play about race and about a black man, and that is not really how it ought to be interpreted. So it's also the way in which Shakespeare is actually being taught that is is not under threat, that's happening right now, uh, where they'll talk about is Shakespeare an anti-Semite, is Shakespeare a racist, is Shakespeare a misogynist, and so on. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying you can't have that conversation at all, but when most of your conversations are, are, mm. are around that, that's where it becomes problematic. Yeah, fascinating. Uh, now, look, Catherine, you have obviously been a public figure to some degree since 2010 and, and that landmark speech that put you on the map at, at the Tory party conference. But I think this week it really went to another level with this big ITV primetime Sunday night documentary about you and your school, but it very much was focused on you and your personal education philosophy. So, so tell me what it's been like, the response this week. Have you had largely a positive reaction to, to your methods or has there been a lot of pushback? Because, of course, ITV these days is, is, is a pretty woke channel usually, so I imagine some of their viewers were quite shocked by some of your practices. Well, you know, it was really interesting because... I have to say the overwhelming response from people has been extremely positive. We've had a number of emails through the school, a lot from the older generation, actually, who are saying, you know, I thought these kinds of schools had disappeared. We're so pleased someone's doing something. It's so, I'm so happy to see tradition. I'm so happy to see good discipline. Um, and, you know, if your viewers want to see it, they can go on the ITV Hub for the shorter version. There's a 45-minute version on ITV. But there's also a website by the producer uh, where they have the full 90-minute feature uh, called strictestheadmistress.com. I mean, it's a, bit, it's a silly name, strictestheadmistress.com. But if you go there, you will see the full 90 minutes, which which does give you a real sense of the school. And I would say for families too, there are 12 rules that I give for how to raise children. Whether you're a teacher or a parent, what should you be doing with your child to make sure that they grow up into a happy and loved and purposeful human being, you know, as an adult. And um, I, I found like our electrician at school, he saw it and he said it's made him into a better father. So that's all that I want really is to just try and spread the word about what works with kids because um, th this stuff really does work. And it's the stuff, as I say in the documentary, I say it's the stuff that your grandmother would have told you. You know, she knows and she knew. It's just that we've sort of lost a lot of that recently and we need to get it back. 
No, indeed, my dad is a headmaster, actually, and I'm very proud of him, and he's about to retire, and I... I do worry that, that his generation is dying out. And so I think it's so important to see you sticking to some of these very traditional things that are so important. Like, for example, no, you're not having your phone in school, by the way, which lots of schools these days don't say. Yeah, well, exactly. You've got schools where they've got their AirPods in, they've got yeah. their phones out in lessons, that the teacher is asking to take the phones out so that they supposedly can do some work. It's just, it's terrible. And um, I think it should be obvious that we shouldn't be having phones in schools and in the classrooms. It's obvious to me that parents shouldn't give their children unsupervised access to the internet. That's one of my rules. And that can be difficult because parents don't really understand just how much um, bad stuff they can access on the internet, the kinds of people that they can meet. People know where you live, what your child, who your child's friends are, their route to school. I mean, you have no idea. And then suddenly your child starts lying to you and you don't know why. And it's because of people that they met on that unsupervised uh, device that you, that you gave them. So it, it's really, I'm just making a plea to parents to, to listen and to think about these ideas. And there are so many teachers actually who have got in touch with me to say, oh my goodness, the school looks fantastic. Thanks so much for, for yeah. just flying the fa flag on discipline, flying the flag on old fashioned teaching from the front of the class where the teacher is the authority leading the yeah. learning. Well, the line that really stuck with me most, actually, when I think of the whole documentary, was the fact that you view discipline as love. Showing discipline is also showing love, which is something that doesn't go together in this modern world. Yes, that's right. So people think if you're strict, that means you're mean. But actually, I'd say if you're strict, that means you really love them because you love them enough to hold your standards really high for them. So when I'm getting upset with that boy who you just saw, and he's in the program, yeah. and I'm telling him off, he's tripped somebody up on the stairs. You know, he's not even tripped them. He's kicked them slightly. It's a small thing. And um, now if I don't make a big deal about that small thing, then he's going to do bigger and bigger things. But you make a big deal of the small things and then the big things just don't happen. And that boy who is spinning out of control at his old school comes to us. Now he's moving into year 10 in September. He's all set for his GCSEs. He's completely transformed that child. You know, so <laughs> that's what you want is to be Absolutely. doing that for as many children as you can. And you are more likely to do that for more children <laughs> if you keep your standards high and love them. Love them enough to keep your standards high and be really strict with them. Couldn't agree more. I think you're absolutely brilliant. And it was a really, really fascinating insight to the work that you've done at Michaela Catherine Burble Singh, who is featured Thanks. in Britain's strictest head teacher. Thank you, Catherine. We'll speak soon. Now, some of the most maligned people in the UK are those who dare to raise questions about the vaccine. But while the MSM doggedly continues to ignore the topic, a bombshell new study by a distinguished team of Danish researchers has revealed death rates from the mRNA vaccine send danger signals. That's their term. 
The team, led by my next guest, Professor Christine Stabble-Ben, found no statistically meaningful evidence in trial data that mRNA vaccines manufactured by the likes of Pfizer and Moderna reduced all-cause mortality, which is overall deaths from any cause. In fact, they found the number of deaths from other causes, including cardiovascular deaths, appear to be increased in this group, compensating for the beneficial effects of the vaccines on COVID. Breaking down the findings in online publication Unheard, Professor at Stanford School of Medicine, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, writes, these preliminary results stand in sharp contrast to the unambiguous message from public health agencies and governments worldwide, which granted emergency authorization to the vaccines based on evidence from the trials that the vaccines reduce the likelihood of getting symptomatic COVID. From a public health perspective, prevention of COVID symptoms is not as important as prevention of death or disease transmission, which the randomized trials did not study. But despite the significance of her findings, Professor Stapple-Ben feels there just isn't the correct level of interest. Speaking to Unheard, she said, I have been in this game now for almost 30 years, studying vaccines and finding these non-specific effects, which have been very controversial. There are strong powers out there that don't really want to hear about them. But to me, this is good news. It means that we can optimise the use of vaccines to not only be strong protective efforts against vaccine disease, but we can also optimise their use in terms of overall health. Well, I'm delighted to say that Professor Christine Stabble-Ben joins me now. Professor, really fascinating results. Uh, obviously, I know it's early days. There's a lot more work to be done. But when you look at all-cause mortality, do you feel comfortable to say now that it doesn't look like the mRNA COVID vaccines, you know, the vaccines by the likes of Pfizer and Moderna, were as good as, for example, the AstraZeneca vaccines. Just to give you a bit of background, our group has for decades studied the overall health effects of vaccines, um, the, their effects on overall mortality. Uh, we've done that in an African context with high mortality, and there it became very evident that vaccines, in addition to protecting against the vaccine disease, also have effects on the immune system, which affect how the immune system subsequently respond to a broad range of other unrelated uh, diseases. Um, these effects we've called non-specific effects. Uh, they are generally accepted now in research, uh, among researchers, but unfortunately this knowledge has not really come into uh, the systems for testing and approving the vaccines, uh, also mm. new vaccines. So that means that we actually don't have the studies to actually document the full health effect of vaccines before they are being uh, tested, launched and, uh, and, and used in large Yes, because, because to be clear, your argument is that the vaccines might work or not work, but in this case, they do work against what they are meant to work for COVID-19, but they have other effects on the body sometimes too. Other effects, yes. They might Positive and effect. negative. Yes, so what we've seen is that, in general, the pattern we have observed is that live attenuated vaccines, which contain the pathogen in a weakened form, these live vaccines can uh, strengthen the immune system and the general health of the children who receive it so that they're better. So that's the AstraZeneca jab, to be clear. We were actually not sure about either the AstraZeneca or the other adenovirus vector vaccines or the mRNA vaccines for that sake, because these are two new vaccine types. So what we saw was the live vaccines were beneficial, the non-live vaccines, I should say. We saw that they were actually harmful in the sense that they, particularly for girls, they came and protected against the vaccine diseases, but they could actually 
come at a high cost, namely the increased risk of other diseases in the females for reasons we are still trying to understand. Which but we must understand. And just to clarify, Christine, sorry, when you say non-live, are you referring to the mRNA vaccines there like Pfizer and Moderna? No, well, what I'm, I'm trying to say is that we didn't know uh, right from the beginning with those two new uh, types of vaccines, both the adenovirus vectors vaccines and the mRNA vaccines, whether they would behave as live and or non-live. Uh, we were actually in doubt because both of them are, in principle, they're new vaccines and they could have behaved like live vaccines. What we see now when we are looking at the overall mortality effect of the vaccines and compare them to each other, then... There is a highly statistically significant difference in their effect on overall mortality. So what we see is that the adenovirus vector vaccines like the AstraZeneca reduce all-cause mortality much more than explained just by the prevention of COVID deaths. And they also reduce cardiovascular deaths. In general, they reduce all the non-COVID, non-accident deaths significantly also. So this suggests that the adenovirus vector vaccines, even though the adenovirus has been engineered so that it doesn't replicate, it isn't really live, live in the sense that it it, it can um, behave like a live virus, it, they, it nonetheless seems to stimulate the immune system. At least that's that's a hint that they might stimulate the immune system beneficially and and, and generally improve the health of the recipients beyond their effect on yes. COVID-19. But in contrast, we don't see this effect uh, of the mRNA vaccines. I have to emphasize that the vaccines weren't tested against each other. That's actually what we are advocating, that we need to have studies now comparing head-to-head -head recipients of the absolutely. Uh, those who received adenovirus vector vaccines with those who receive mRNA vaccines. Because if Absolutely. we are anywhere near the truth with this effect, it actually has enormous uh, public health implications. Well, it does indeed. And I just wanted to pick up a little bit more on that point regarding the mRNA vaccines. So the trial data shows that there was hardly any statistically meaningful evidence that the mRNA vaccines reduced all-cause mortalities. And that's because there was an increase, at least in your sample, of cardiovascular deaths in particular. Do you have any way of knowing whether those cardiovascular deaths are connected to the mRNA vaccine? No, and I don't have any any possible way of saying that the vaccines are protecting or not protecting or increasing all-cause mortality because numbers are so small. So this is a real pity. This is because the system for testing vaccines doesn't demand that there is also a demonstration of effect on all-cause mortality because the trials were large, but they were stopped after a few months when they started vaccinating the control groups. So we only have short follow-up. We only have a total of 31 deaths in the mRNA trials, uh, the, the, the Pfizer and the Moderna trials. So that is absolutely too little to say. We, we can say they aren't distri they are distributed with 16 deaths in the mRNA group and 15 in the uh, in the placebo group. And overall, there's no indication that there's a reduction of all-cause mortality. But the confidence interval, as we call it, ar around this estimate is so broad that it doesn't exclude that mm. there could be a quite a strong beneficial effect of these vaccines on all-cause mortality. Uh, but on the other hand, it doesn't exclude either that there could be uh, an increase in overall mortality. What we see for cardiovascular diseases is a 45% increased risk of dying from cardiovascular diseases in the mRNA group versus the placebo group. But again, the confidence intervals are uh, very, very broad. It doesn't exclude a beneficial effect of these vaccines on cardiovascular death either. I know. So 
I think our and bottom line here is that, that we don't have the data to say anything about the overall health effects of mRNA vaccines, but that is obviously a big problem since we're well, indeed, Exactly. To, to, to everyone, we're all being expected to be jabbed, some people four or even five times now. So that's why I just want to ask you finally, Professor, what you mean by, by this comment. There are strong powers out there that don't really want to hear about your results. Are you talking about Big Pharma there? Are you talking about organisations like the World Health Organisation? Because to me, this, this research that you've done is utterly critical and people should be pouring resources into it to, to, to make sure uh, that we find out. I completely agree. I think the big powers are both big pharma and also the public health institutions because you can see the the. I mean, I'm I'm I love the potential in these uh, studies, these non-specific effects, the 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 potential we have for improving vaccination schedules and actually making them cleverer and more useful, etc. But I think they they are raising some challenges to to big pharma and to public health in terms of how vaccines are tested and uh, and regulated and approved. And, and that goes for new vaccines being developed. It actually also goes for the vaccines we have already because, I mean, unknown to most people, none of the vaccines that we use today in vaccination programs globally were assessed for their effects on overall health before they were being introduced. So everybody was so sure at that time that vaccines did nothing but protect against the vaccine disease. So it didn't seem necessary to test them for other effects. So once it was proven that the vaccines protected against the vaccine disease, well, then any kind of assessment stopped. But, but with this new knowledge, it's actually time to also go back and look at our current vaccination schedules and, say, and, and, and really assess whether they're achieving what we want them to achieve, namely improving the overall health of the recipients, not just protecting them against specific diseases. Very important point, very important work that you're doing. Please keep in touch with us on it. That's the Professor in Global Health at the University of Southern Denmark, Christine Stavel-Ben. We approached the manufacturers, by the way, of the main mRNA vaccines used here in the UK, because we give you both sides of the story here on GB News, Pfizer and Moderna. Neither got back to us about Professor Stavel-Ben's study. Pfizer have said previously that hundreds of millions of people have received its vaccine, while the benefits of shots based on the mRNA technology used by both Moderna and Pfizer, BioNTech and preventing COVID-19 continue to outweigh the risks regulators in the United States, EU and the World Health Organization have said. Darren Grimes is tonight's outsider. And with Jamie Oliver's Downing Street stunt leaving him looking like a spotted dick, does his Eton mess protest outside number 10 prove he's the embodiment of the metropolitan elite? Here's a reminder of how the multi-millionaire TV chef responded to Boris Johnson's U-turn on a pledge to ban buy one, get one free food deals. I say Eton, you say? No. I say Eton, you yeah. say? Well, we don't want a U-turn, do we, guys? No. So we want to put child health first. The strategy was looking world class. Uh, now it doesn't. And it's our job uh, to put it all back together again and make sure that we can build a better future for our kids. Mm, very tone deaf, I think, at a time when the country is suffering the worst household finance crisis in decades and many have been forced to choose between heating or eating. 
in that context, scrapping good value supermarket food deals for the needy and vulnerable is surely the last thing Jamie Oliver should be campaigning for. In fact, that was probably the most privileged protest I've ever seen. So, Darren Grimes, is Jamie Oliver just dead wrong on this? Look, Dan, I think actually most viewers tonight watching that clip there, they might well think Jamie Oliver's heart's in the right place in actually seeking to ensure that kids and others aren't eating exclusively terrible food. But as you rightly say, we haven't seen a cost of living crisis like this for generations, right? Seeking a ban on these buy one, get one free offers or, or bog off offers, as, as they're called. I tell you what, Dan, the only person I want to bog off is Jamie Oliver, because I think that actually this would be a really, really incredibly regressive move. And he's a hypocrite as well, right? This man on his website, if you want to make Jamie Oliver's eaten mess, guess how much sugar it contains, Dan? 300 <laughs> grams, 300 grams of sugar. And you just think... He has this deal with, with Shell, I think it is, petrol stations up and down this country, Dan, stocking Jamie Oliver fast food. There are steak bakes and steak slices and these sort of things, which contain massive amounts of fat. But of course, Jamie Oliver will be receiving quite the nice pay packet off of the sale of those. And if you ask me, you look at his record, Dan, right? It's a long and proud record of seeking to impose taxes, bans, and frankly, those that exclusively hit the poorest hardest. Because if you think about the, the sugar tax, you can't say it's worked, really. All it's done is that if you fancy a full-fat Coke, for example, you're going to get it, but you're just going to end up paying the tax. All sorts of things. If you consider the fact that he, in the agriculture bill last year, he tried to actually ensure that we couldn't have trade deals with economies like New Zealand, Dan, because they would have to meet our laws and standards word for word. Every single law would have to be the same. That would preclude us from doing any trade deal whatsoever. That means businesses can't actually trade. Consumers can't benefit from goods that we actually don't manufacture or, or produce, aren't able to grow in this country. Things like that, where actually he has been an ultimate menace. And this is a menace from a, a report suggesting he has a £6 million mansion, right? This is someone hectoring, lecturing the British people. And all of these measures take calories on restaurant menus, Dan. Do you honestly believe that anyone sat in a Weatherspoons with a pint and a burger is going to take one iota, one jot of notice at the calorie count? If they want a burger, they want a pint. They're going to have it, right? This is a, a no-nonsense country in which I think people are a little bit fed up of the government and, and elites, frankly, telling people what they can and can't do. And it is interesting that he's in wax and lyrical outside of number 10 Downing Street there. All of that group that he was with, right? Look, they, they I imagine, live exclusively off of a diet of quinoa, right? And all of these other fancy new salads. And are pro all of these green taxes and things like that, which again, disproportionately hit the poorest. It's a neo-feudalism, right? Where you've got these elites coming over, Telling whether that actually you can't eat that, that's not good for you. Oh, you can't have holidays, you can't eat cheap meat. All of these things, I think, 
are symptomatic of an elite which is out of control. And I think far too many are actually being listened to on issues like these. So I'm actually pleased with the government, but the government haven't actually scrapped their ban on buy one, get one free offers. They've delayed it, right? It's a temporary delay, they say. I think it should be scrapped outright. I think it's an absolute, you cannot imagine the, the hardship that families up and down this country, especially in areas like this here, up here in the Northeast, energy bills and all of the rest of it, Jamie Oliver's not going to struggle, as you say, Dan, to put, Bring the, to put the lights on. But in seeking to buy, ban buy one, get one free offers when people are struggling so badly, I think he's proven, he's shown himself to be an out-of-touch prat, to be frank. <laughs> Darren Grimes has spoken. Darren Grimes, thank you so much. And, of course, Darren show Real Britain, Saturday and Sunday afternoons here on GB News. Dan Wooden here again. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of my podcast, Uncancelled. Did you like what you hear? Well, remember to subscribe, rate and review and join me for more newsmaking interviews, fiery debate and free speech on Dan Wooden tonight every Monday to Thursday from 9pm till 11pm on GB News.